Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Today on Next from the New England News Collaborative, Tavares. If you need a strong hand to guide you through the night. The story of New England's most famous R&B family and what it's like to be Cape Verdean in America. I never considered myself to be a black American. I don't want to be called that. That's not what I am. You know, so I'd, I'd always say I was, you know, black with Cape Verdean descent. Also on the show, grappling with racial symbols in New England, from Rhode Island's official state name to Faneuil Hall in Boston. It is a monument in our city which reflects white supremacy, which is odious to people who love democracy. Plus, author Jennifer DeLeon reflects on her time in a mostly white suburban school. I just felt like my life was divided, and yet I never fully belonged in either world. Her life and how it intersects with her writing. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. It's November in 1973. Soul Train is on TV. The pluck of a bass guitar glides under an unmistakable disco string section as the last group takes the stage. The camera dissolves from lights to the figures of five brothers in matching bell-bottoms, picked-out afros, platform shoes, and jackets over bare chests and beaded necklaces. From left to right, the Tavares brothers, Butch, Ralph, Chubby, Pooch, and Tiny, are waiting for their cues. The music swells, and the camera pushes in, on Chubby. This is the Tavares' first time on Soul Train, and as the brothers serenade the crowd, they are at the center of black American culture. But if you talk to the brothers today, their racial and cultural identity carries a lot of nuance. I never considered myself to be a black American. I don't want to be called that. That's not what I am. You know, so I'd, I'd always say I was, you know, black with Cape Verdean descent. That's what we're going to spend a chunk of this show exploring, what it means to be Cape Verdean in a black and white America, through the story of New England's most famous R&B family. Ana Gonzalez, the host of Mosaic from the Publix Radio, takes it from here. Can you tell me about some of the photos on your wall of your family members? Oh! Ralph Tavares is the oldest of the band of brothers. On this early fall day in 2020, He's showing me photos on the walls of his home in Dartmouth. Well, that's my son, Ralph, and his wife, Kimmy. This is my grandson, Maceo. On the surface, Ralph seems like any other grandfather. He retired in 2017 after over 30 years in the New Bedford court system. With the pandemic, Ralph spends most of his days helping take care of his grandkids and going through memorabilia from his past. Only unlike your grandfather, his memorabilia includes a Grammy, photos with Muhammad Ali and Stevie Wonder, and gold records. There are boxes of posters and framed, chart-topping records like Don't Take Away the Music, Check It Out, and Heaven Must Be Missing an Angel. On the coffee table, there are shoeboxes filled with family photographs. 
That's my Uncle Peter. What a great father. My father's brother. Now that's us. Wow. <laughs> Ralph just dug up a photo of him when he's probably 13 years old with all five of his younger brothers, the future members of Tavares. Altogether, there are 10 Tavares siblings, and Ralph is right in the middle, number five. They grew up split between two of the most Cape Verdean places in America, New Bedford, Massachusetts, and the Fox Point neighborhood in Providence, Rhode Island. And that's where this photo was taken, at the Fox Point Boys Club. My mother and father kept us pretty well straight as far as uh, growing up with all those kids. We belonged to the Boys Club, the Fox Point Boys Club. We used to go every night, and we would sing in. As a matter of fact, we started singing Cape Verdean songs, because that's all we knew. One was called North Kifi Cham, Amaldi Amord. Ralph's parents, Feliciano and Albina, were both born in New England to Cape Verdean immigrant parents. Cape Verde is a set of islands off the west coast of Africa that was colonized by Portugal until 1975. Still today, Cape Verdeans and their descendants are a mix of Portuguese and West African cultures. In the late 1800s, the whaling industry brought droves of Cape Verdean immigrants to New England port cities like New Bedford and Providence. And when that industry died out, the cranberry bogs sustained Cape Verdean immigration. In the 1900s, families turned to the ports, the factories, or the farms to find work. Albina Gomes grew up in a farming family in Massachusetts, and Feliciano Vieira Tavares grew up in Fox Point, where his father worked as a longshoreman. Both the Gomes and Vieira Tavares families stayed close to their cultures by continuing to speak Criollo, cooking Cape Verdean foods, and, especially in the Tavares family, singing and playing Cape Verdean folk music. Now, my father was a musician. He played in the, in the band called the Creole Sextet was the names of the band. And my Aunt Vicky sang. The music you're hearing now is actually Feliciano, a.k.a. Flash Tavares, singing a folk song called Lolo. During the 1930s and 40s, Flash and Vicky tore throughout the Northeast performing modernized, jazz-inflected Cape Verdean music. Even as Flash marries Albina and starts having kids, he continues to tour. So the Tavares children are all born into the music industry. Literally. Him and my aunt were driving back from with my mother from someplace that they were performing in New York. Whereas they were getting too close to Connecticut, I guess she went into labor. So I was born in Waterbury but move right away to Massachusetts. Next comes Arthur, a.k.a. Pooch, then Anton, a.k.a. Chubby, then Victor, then Feliciano Jr., who they call Butch, and finally, Perry Lee, who goes by Tiny. My uncle, actually my father's brother, and he told my mom and dad, after they had nine, they came back to him and said, we're having another one. He said, Parali, meaning to stop here in Creole. <laughs> That's Tiny, who's ironically the tallest of everybody in the band. But by the time he's born in 1949, his older siblings are already performing. I 
I think we had like four or five groups at one time in within the confines of the family. My brother Chubby was in a group. The group had a group. There was always different, you know, levels of, of artists and different acts going on at the same time. Amor da mãe é um amor sem ilusão. At first, they're singing Cape Verdean music, just like their dad and mother and aunt. But then they see another world. Here's Ralph. But here's what happened when one day we was we were at a, one of the Cape Verdean picnics they used to have back in those days. They used to have these outside picnics all the time, and my father and my aunt were playing at this, singing and playing uh, in the, in the band. And during one of the intermissions, they, there was a young kid. He came up and he sang a song by Frankie Lyman. <laughs> And the girls and the crowd went crazy. And we looked at each other and we said, that's what we want to do. <laughs> so, so we went home and we started singing like that. My father didn't want to play behind us anymore. The Tavares brothers are used to singing Criollo lyrics to the slow strum of their father's guitar in Cape Verdean folk songs. And here comes rock and roll, this fast, fun dance music in English. It's exhilarating. And at the time, rock is a black American music. The Tavares brothers see themselves in the young black crooner of Frankie Lyman. And they're beginning to realize that the rest of the world sees them that way, too. I remember I was going out with this girl. Her first name was Patricia. And while we were younger, it was fine. And as soon as we started going to school, her father stopped me from seeing her. And I couldn't understand why. It was because I was black and she was white. Ralph knows he's dark-skinned. But when he's younger, he doesn't realize this makes him another race from his white neighbors, especially the Portuguese ones whose culture is so similar to his. He and the rest of the Tavares siblings think of themselves as Cape Verdean first and then black. I never considered myself to be a black American. I don't want to be called that. That's not what I am. I'd always say I was, you know, black with Cape Verdean descent. But that nuance of identity gets lost in American culture. Regardless of how much you identify with being Cape Verdean culturally, etc., one is always going to be positioned, most likely, as being black. This is Khalil Saucier professor and director of the Africana Studies program at Bucknell, and a Rhode Island native. So are you willing to be Black in the eyes of society? And I'm not talking culturally, but how you're positioned, and are you, are you willing to defend that position? So that changes the script from race creates racism to actually racism creates race. Khalil argues that it doesn't matter how you identify on the inside— it's the outside that people and systems judge. And that's exactly what happens to the Tavares brothers one night when they're on their back porch in Fox Point practicing harmonies. We got arrested one night singing. <laughs> we, they caught us was disturbing the peace. Took us downtown. My father had to come and get us out of jail because and all we were doing was singing on the back porch. And this one police officer came by, said we, that he got a complaint that we were disturbing the peace. The Cape Verdean from Pawtucket understands that he or she is black 
when the hands are on the hood of the police car. It doesn't matter if they think they're black prior to or Cape Verdean. They're black when the violence of racism is being enacted. That's when race is created. It's the 1950s. Even though Rhode Island and Massachusetts don't operate under Jim Crow laws, society is still very much segregated. This protects the Tavares kids to some extent from knowing what kind of oppression sits on the other side of the color line. But once they realize the limitations society puts on them and their parents, it lights a fire in the brothers. All I knew was that my mother and father struggled very hard to keep clothes on us and feed us. And that's how we got the inspiration about wanting to be something. In 1962, the family moves to New Bedford permanently, and Ralph joins the army, but the rest of the brothers are still home, and they start trying to make their dreams a reality. They actually did road work. They went from door to door, knocking on doors at record companies and stuff like that. That's the kind of stuff you see in in the movies. Tiny's still a kid when his older brothers Chubby and Pooch start trying to get signed with their singing group, Chubby and the Realities. He's technically not in the group, but he and his underage brothers, Victor and Butch, still make it on stage. But we had to stay in the dressing room because we weren't old enough to be in the club. So we, they'd hide us out in the dressing room. And then if it was a point where they wanted us to come out and sing a pot, they'd bring us out, sing a pot, and I'd get back in the dressing room. The Tavareses are paying their dues, honing their act, and making some money at the local venues. But nothing pans out for years. The younger brothers are still playing clubs in New England when Ralph returns from the Army in 1965. When I came home, I couldn't find any work. And then I saw my brother singing down at the, um, they were at the Blue Flame. And I was sitting there and I was, and I had seen some of the groups that came through from Detroit. And I said, we were just as good as they were. That's what made me not re-enlist and form the group. This time, it feels more serious. Ralph is back home, and Victor and Butch are finally old enough to get into clubs the right way. They practice and refine their blend of doo-wop, Motown, and soul singing for two full years under the name Chubby and the Turnpikes. In 1967, Ralph, Chubby, Pooch, Victor, and Butch get backing to cut a record. Telling all your friends since your love's been gone But it's not a record deal. They don't get the national fame they're hoping for, but they are selling out clubs all over New England. Chubby and the Turnpikes have an electric act. They're theatrical and impeccably dressed. They dance in unison, and their harmonies are unparalleled. If an instrument could play it, we could sing it. also undeniably, visibly, and joyfully very black, like singing covers of the theme from Shaft, Black. There's no hint of Cape Verdean music in their acts, and it's working for them. But being black in America and performing that blackness to crowds in the late 1960s and early 70s is not easy. Offstage, the brothers faced the same sort of issues they experienced with white folks their whole lives. Back in the day, South Boston was was the most dangerous place to be if you were black. And we worked those clubs. They wanted us in their clubs. The the club owner wasn't prejudiced, but his friends were. (laughs) You know, people who... Somebody stole your car. They stole my brother Chubby's car. Yeah, yeah. One time they stole his car, took it for a ride, brought it back, parked it. Says, hey, car ride's nice. 
you know, hey, what was you going to do? You, they were, you were outnumbered. Most cases, whenever they did that, you were outnumbered. And it's not just white club owners and their friends. The Tavares brothers also get pushback from other black performers. That's new to them. I remember, uh, who was it that came? It was Rick James. And he, he hadn't become a famous yet. But he came to see us performing in the club that we were playing at. They wanted to know. He almost started a riot because they thought we were invading their territory. But then they saw we were dark-skinned, but they didn't know what the name, what we were, because we looked different than them. We were black Americans. That's all we considered ourselves, you know. But being Cape Verdean, we didn't think there was a difference. We just thought we was there was just black and white. I didn't know that there was a discrimination between the races as far as ethnicity, you know, where you where you were born and where your families were from. As a matter of fact, we used to tell them we're closer to Africa than anybody over here in this group. Cape Verdean Islands is closer to Africa than anybody from the South. So they kind of started accepting us then. They started understanding that just because our last name was a different and we were what we call Cape Verdeans, we were still black Americans, you know. Chubby and the Turnpikes make their way up and down the East Coast to the Caribbean and Europe. All along the way, they're encountering different perceptions of their race and identity. When they're in Italy, they realize that nobody in Europe really knows what a turnpike is, so they decide to change their name to something more international. And they go with the one thing they all have in common, their last name, Tavares. Months later, in 1973, Capitol Records gives them a shot. Tavares can record one single as a test. However the single does on the charts will determine whether or not Tavares gets that coveted multi-record recording contract. Check it out, baby. Check it out. help from an appearance on Soul Train, Check It Out makes it to number 20 on the R&B charts. Tavares lands the deal. Oh, it was unbelievable. Listen, anything that was happening to us then felt like a dream. Because we had been waiting for it so long. We had been singing all the different local clubs, but nothing was materializing. We So, you know, we were making a living as far as taking care of ourselves, but not being able to take care of our families or anything. And then when we finally started making records, it opened up for us, you know. Check it out. Check it out. Check out Check it out is the first hit of many for Tavares. They put out their first full-length record through Capitol Records in 1974. Their second, Hardcore Poetry, comes out later that year and charts even higher. Their touring schedule becomes more international, and instead of clubs, they're playing stadiums. The Tavares Brothers are becoming stars. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, the Tavares Brothers ride that stardom to get their biggest break. Plus, they reflect and disagree on what racism looks like in 2020. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, 
supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Tavares has made it big, putting out records and touring internationally. Ralph Tavares picks up where we left off with host Ana Gonzalez of the Public's Radio podcast, Mosaic. Yeah, people started hearing about how good we were, and we had a great show. You know, not only just getting up there just doing one song, we could do two hours worth of music. Just the way we used to working, you know. They opened for Aretha Franklin, Smokey Robinson, Barry White, Nancy Wilson, the Jackson Five. We toured with the Jacksons, you know, it was a family tour. We would play basketball, they cheated. (laughs) But anyway, it was fun, though. They go on the Johnny Carson show, American Bandstand, Soul Train a couple more times. And finally, they tour with the Bee Gees. It's the 70s, after all. And it's through the Australian disco legends that the Tavares brothers get their biggest break. At Madison Square Gardens, when they first told us that they were doing this movie, Saturday Night Fever, and they want to write a song for us, you know, that's how we got More Than a Woman. song. You're right. Tavares is touring when the production of Saturday Night Fever changes hands and demands the track sooner than the brothers could record it. So the Bee Gees record a demo of the song. That demo makes it into the big dance contest scene in the film instead of Tavares's version. Tavares returns to the States and records the version you're hearing right now, but they're told it doesn't fit the scene. The movie says they're not going to use it. But Tavares has a contract. So Capitol Records said, we're going to sue you. There was going to be a big lawsuit. The movie hadn't even been reduced, had been finished yet, so they didn't want to go through all of that. So what happened was that whoever the director was of the movie went in and did another special scene where they, him and the girl danced in the studio. That was never made for the movie. They had to make up that whole scene to fit to the song that we sang so there wouldn't be no lawsuit. That's why there's two versions of More Than a Woman. Aside from that being a really juicy bit of Hollywood trivia, it shows that Tavares has made it, in a sense, to this upper echelon of the music business. And they're realizing who holds the power. It's not the artists. And it's certainly not black artists. I always felt that there were still things that, you know, that we weren't entitled to. There was, it was always about entitlement. And I think being black, you don't get the advantage that if you were, being, if you were white. If you were white doing it, you, you had more opportunity. I don't care what, what field you were in. In 1979, Reverend Jesse Jackson organizes a tour of American pop groups in South Africa. He invites Tavares. And the trip makes it clear how the world sees the brothers. The only reason why they let us go to South Africa and perform was because we were able to sing in front of mixed audiences. Maybe the, the third week we were there that we found out in our passports, because that's when they gave us our passports back, that we were there as honorary whites. Can you imagine? That's the only way they would let us into the country. On our passport was stamped honorary whites. Who knows what that means? Because we were still dot, you know. What does that mean? After this trip, Tavares' success slows down. The music industry in general is flailing in the recession of the early 1980s. And disco music is on its deathbed. 
The band is able to tour and put out records, but everything feels more and more impersonal. Tiny says after being with Capitol for 10 years, nobody at the label even knows they're from New Bedford instead of Boston, let alone Cape Verdean instead of Black. Some people don't even know that they're brothers. With record sales slowing down and bills and family obligations piling up, it doesn't feel worth it anymore, at least for the oldest brother. If you don't have hit records, you're not in demand. And if you're not in demand, there's not that much work out for there for you. So I had to raise a family. I had to take care of a house. So I was paying for all of that. It wasn't coming in like it used to. So I said, I got to do something. Ralph leaves the group in 1984 to move back to New Bedford full-time and be with his family. He gets the job at the courts through a friend and starts working a nine-to-five. Tavares continues touring in Europe, where they're still huge, and each brother experiments with some solo records and other groups. Over the next 30 years, each Tavares brother incorporates other streams of income to make ends meet. In 2014, Pooch has a stroke, and Ralph returns to the group. They tour with other older legends like the Four Tops and the Temptations across the U.S. and Europe up until the beginning of this year, when the pandemic canceled everything. I don't think I'll ever hit the stage again, the way things are going as far as the pandemic and all that. 2020 has also brought a season of civil rights protests and uprisings, unlike anything our nation has seen since the movements of the 60s and 70s. It's forcing the Tavares brothers to return to conversations they thought were over and done with. We worked in the South when we were younger, and we went through, you couldn't, you know, sit in this restaurant. You couldn't sit at that table. You had to sit at this table. You couldn't come in through the front end. You had to come through the back end. We went through all of that. It shouldn't be there. We shouldn't be at back at that plateau again. But here we are. Still, there's no consensus among the brothers about their racial identity or political position. Here's Ralph. And I understand the situation that they were talking about, but all lives matter. It's not just black lives. It's all lives. Every her- every nationality, no matter where you're, it, all lives matter. Tiny disagrees. For Ralph to say that, that's Ralph's perspective. You know, And I don't begrudge anybody their perspective, but don't begrudge me mine because I'd be the first one to say, oh, black lives do matter. And no, not all lives matter. All lives matter, but the lives of those who are being, being jeopardized are black. So therefore, those are the lives that matter more to me right now, especially with the fact that i got to raise them. I have to raise black children. (laughs) This conversation feels particularly important now because of a young man from Providence, Jamal Gonsalves. He's still in the hospital recovering from an accident that happened back in October, where witnesses say a police cruiser struck him while he was driving his moped in South Providence. Jamal Gonsalves is Cape Verdean, But to the police and the media, he's just another black kid. And even though the Tavares brothers experienced discrimination in their lifetimes, they also recognized that their careers in the limelight afforded them some protection. Fortunately for us, music did give us a better way and and more respect to extent that people who may be prejudiced weren't as prejudiced because of what we did for a living. So that kind of kind of got you through some of the rough spots. But when I think to the people who didn't have that privilege, that advantage, imagine what they went through, you know, and, 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 and it's proven. You know, just look at all the people who've died to get us where we are today. In many ways, music has been a gift to the Tavares brothers, one that helps them acknowledge their Cape Verdean roots and yet adapt to a racialized America, 
It all makes me think of another famous Ralph, Ralph Ellison, who wrote, Perhaps in the swift change of American society, in which the meanings of one's origin are so quickly lost, one of the chief values of living with music lies in its power to give us an orientation in time. In doing so, it gives significance to all those indefinable aspects of experience, which nevertheless help to make us what we are. That story comes from the podcast Mosaic, a production of The Public's Radio in Rhode Island. Ana Gonzalez is the host and producer, and you can catch every episode of the show at mosaicpodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. With attention focused on the COVID vaccine, some may have missed this news, the passage of two measures in the states of Rhode Island and Mississippi that some are calling historic. It's the removal of symbols of slavery. GBH Radio's Philip Martin reports on Boston's efforts to grapple with racial symbols and whether the effort to rename Faneuil Hall will get new momentum. Some might stand at this spot overlooking these iron gray waters and imagine a pilgrim ship dropping anchor and freedom-seeking men and women disembarking onto a new land. But Lamurchie Frazier looks out and sees something different altogether black bodies. Those lost at sea and those survivors that were able to get to the shores here who helped to found America. Frazier is the director of education for the Museum of African American History. We're standing next to a marker that observes the forced arrival to these shores of Africans across what became known as the Middle Passage. On one side, the marker bears the names and brief biographies of notable 18th century Africans in America. On the other side is a map showing the way to black communities in Boston. It was placed here in October by Fraser's Museum in cooperation with the National Park Service and the city of Boston. To have this marker here is for people who pass by this marker to get the truth that Massachusetts was the first colony to legally adopt slavery. Fraser says that is critical because many in New England think of only the South in the context of enslaved men and women and have no idea of the enormous role Massachusetts played in this brutal enterprise. The same can be said of neighboring Rhode Island, says Senator Harold Metz, who spearheaded the ballot initiative there to have the word plantation removed from the state's official name. It's really a sign of the times. When you think of the Confederate flag and the statues to Confederate generals and the the Civil War where we had more people killed on both sides than any other war and how America deals with the issues of race that we've never really healed from. The Rhode Island Initiative succeeded after a summer of nationwide protest and calls for racial justice following the death of George Floyd. Those demonstrations were accompanied by demands for the removal of statues and monuments connected to racism and slavery. We are in concert with activists in Rhode Island who sought to strip the name Plantation from its uh, state seal and moniker. We believe that Boston can do the same in terms of the change in the name of Faneuil Hall. For several years, Kevin Peterson, a minister who runs the New Democracy Coalition in Boston, has been uniformly focused on this goal. Peter Faneuil was a slave owner, a person who trafficked in selling human bodies, Africans. His name sits atop a public building in the city of Boston. It is a monument in our city which reflects white supremacy, which is odious to people who love democracy. Peterson says the momentum is on his side, pointing to Rhode Island and Mississippi, 
where voters earlier this year removed the Confederate symbol from the state's flag. But in Boston, while Mayor Marty Walsh has declared racism a public health crisis, he has shown no inclination to change the name of Faneuil Hall. Mayoral candidates, councillors Michelle Wu and Andrea Campbell, have not been clear on this issue. In a statement to GBH News, Campbell said she supported having a public conversation, but that, in her words, removing names and statues won't stop racism in the city of Boston or eradicate racial inequities. Lamurchi Frazier agrees. The hall has its place in history. As the wind picks up on the harbor, she explains that the idea for the marker to slavery here at Long Wharf began with the commemoration of the International Day of Slavery, August 23, 2015, at Faneuil Hall. Peter Faneuil was an enslaver. However, I think these um, discussions have different remedies as we remove these. What's going to mark the history of what happened? History is complex, says Frazier. She would rather see a marker in front of Faneuil Hall to explain the namesake's connection to slavery rather than removing the name itself. But she concedes there will always be disagreements over how to mark history, even among those who are in agreement on the need to demonstrate Black Lives Matter, then and now. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Philip Martin. After the break, Jennifer DeLeon. Her debut novel is about a young Latina in Boston who's transferred to a mostly white suburban school through a school desegregation program. We'll talk about how the author and her character share this journey of finding your place in a world that feels split. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. This is Next. I'm Morgan Springer. Our final guest is Jennifer DeLeon. She's an author and assistant professor of creative writing at Framingham State University in Massachusetts. Jen has a book of personal essays coming out in the spring called White Space, Essays on Culture, Race, and Writing. But first we'll talk about her debut novel, Don't Ask Me Where I'm From, which came out this year. In the book, Liliana Cruz of Boston has just been selected for a school desegregation program. At dawn, she takes the bus to a mostly white high school in the suburbs. Jennifer DeLeon, welcome to Next. It's so good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So much happens in Liliana Cruz's life after she starts going to school in the suburbs. She's, you know, finding her place and her voice in this new school. I think the title of the book really encapsulates the tension that exists for her as a Latinx girl in a mostly white space. And hopefully our listeners understand why the question, where are you from, can be uh, problematic and frustrating. But I'm wondering if you could talk about 
what this particular framing of don't ask me where I'm from means for Liliana. Right. Yeah. It's not that it's, in my view, it's not that it's a bad question so much as the way in which it's asked. So if someone's asking you, where are you from? And you choose to say Framingham. And then they say, where are you really from? Or where are you from from? You know, it's implying that you can't be from Framingham or that you are from some other place. And sometimes the tone even imparts that you are different and that different is bad. So I think a lot of people of color, a lot of immigrants, um, a lot of people who have been on the receiving end of this question understand that it it can be problematic, um, but it, it doesn't need to be. You know, I think we all benefit from learning about each other's backgrounds. And, and the thing is, everyone is from somewhere. Um, so it's just a matter of how it's framed. Your parents immigrated to Boston from Guatemala, and you spent time growing up partially in Boston and then partially in the suburbs. Can you talk about what your childhood was like? Yes. So I was born in Boston. And when I was two, our family moved to a suburb and we went to school there. We grew up there. We had friends there. We did Girl Scouts. We went to church. You know, we did ice skating, all of the the things that my parents kind of associated with the suburbs. But I think what they hadn't planned on or maybe thought about too much was the fact that my sisters and I were really one of very few families of color in the town, and especially in school, uh, everybody was white. You know, all my friends, all my teachers, all the soccer coaches. And so I had that experience during the week. And then every weekend we would go to Boston to visit my grandmother and my aunts and uncles and cousins. And so in that way, I was constantly moving between two worlds And much like Liliana, um, I just felt like my life was divided, and yet I never fully belonged in either world. Did you feel like you were able to find a point where it didn't feel as divided, or was that not the important thing? It was more to notice and exist in in the worlds as you wanted to. Mm. It wasn't really until middle school, um, high school, where I started to realize the different social groups and Framingham started to get, you know, more diverse. And I felt that push and pull where I felt like even in the, in the cafeteria, like, where do I sit? Do I sit with my white friends, my Jewish friends, or do I sit at the table with black and brown students, you know, with my friend Hazel, who is Puerto Rican, my friend Tanisha, who's black, you know, it just was like, where do I go? Where do I belong? And in high school, there was a group for Latina students. And we were doing, um, you know, college preparation activities and all of that. And, and that's where I felt actually like, oh, my worlds are, are kind of coming together in this way. Yeah, I mean, Liliana is a character that you wrote, and I think it's hard not to wonder how much of you is in this character. Um, And I can hear some overlap as you're talking about your childhood, but does she feel connected to you? I think so, yeah. She, um, Liliana's parents are undocumented 
in the book. And I didn't have that experience. You know, my parents became citizens before my sisters and I were born. But they do share similarities with Liliana's parents in that, you know, they're very tied to their home countries and they really value education and pushed education on us more than anything, I'd say. So I, I tried to infuse that in Liliana's parents and their characters and kind of debunk this maybe stereotype or, or myth that Latinx parents aren't involved in their kids' education or they don't go to the meetings or they're kind of passive and really provide a, a kind of counter-narrative to, to what we consume in the news. One of the things I love about this book is that you seem to really capture Liliana's teenage voice so well. And I'm wondering if you can read a passage from the book on page 179. And I'm just going to set this up a little. This is a conversation Liliana's having with her best friend, Jade, who's also Latinx and grew up next door. Um, And in this scene, Liliana's been at her new school for a little while now through what's called METCO. That's the desegregation program. And they're talking about the fact that Jade has told her boyfriend, Ernesto, that Liliana's father has been deported. And Jade's the first one who talks. Don't even be like that, Liliana. She lit right in. Ernesto and me, we're good, happy. So I share stuff with him. But you seem to have a major problem with that based on your little Mecco whatever program and your white school attitude you got going on. What? Whoa, hold on a minute. This is not about me. You told him about my father, Jade. Really? She stepped closer. See what I mean? See what? That. That right there. You have such a stank-ass attitude. You're all sarcastic. Is that what your new best friend Heather or Holly or whatever her name is talks like? I narrowed my eyes. Oh, so that's what this is about. Thank you for reading that. Now, in terms of Liliana's father and the fact that he's deported, throughout the book, Liliana is missing him, and and I would say idolizing him. So I'm wondering about your relationship with your own parents. You have dedicated this book to your mother for believing in you. Yeah, definitely my mother is... Oh my gosh, she's my biggest cheerleader. I mean, I, I, I could say so much about her. I've written a lot about her and her story of coming to the United States at the age of 18 and really kind of having to find her own way. You know, she didn't speak English. She was the only one in her family here for years. And so just knowing her story and that I'm every positive thing I experience is because of her sacrifice. It really fuels me. You know, it's like the gas in my tank. There's maybe this tension between believing and and pressure. You write in a personal essay that will be part of your forthcoming book of essays called White Space, Essays on Culture, Race, and Writing. You write that your mother will pepper you with questions like, how much do you get paid for writing a book? How long does mm-hmm. it take? What page are you on now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> she uh, wants to know. I think that last question, you know, what page are you on now? I think she wants to cheer me on and say, like, you're almost there. But she's come a long way and she's learned a lot. Her questions are different now, I should say. Yeah. 
I mentioned uh, this collection of personal essays, white space. You know, it strikes me that it's a vulnerable thing to do, definitely different than sharing fiction with readers. And I wanted to read briefly things you wrote in an essay about helping your father with his resume. Um, You say, I wonder what he thinks about the fact that his primary duty each day is to make a pot of rice for dinner. And, And you write that this comes after he had worked for many years, but stopped because he had cancer. Um, You also write about your mother. You say, her role as my father's caretaker has made her eager to leave the house, even if she won't admit it. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, how does this work with your parents? Like, do you ask permission to write this? Um, Are you nervous about them reading it? And, And what's that kind of negotiation as a writer and a daughter? Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. I mean, I wrote in my journal since eighth grade. So I've written about them for years. But once I started writing about them in essays and in ways that I felt like, oh, I want this to have a wider audience and maybe be published, then I did ask, like, hmm, how will they feel about this if I write this? But to be honest, like, the question would enter my mind and then it would just kind of, like, keep on moving. And it's not that I didn't care, like, what are they going to think about this? It's more that I really feel like in order to write truthfully and vulnerably, you have to go 100% because the reader will feel it. And the essay just, it won't click. And I'm grateful in a way that they don't read the literary magazines (laughs) where I publish (laughs) um, a lot of the essays. But I have shared pieces with them and you know, I think that they are, they feel proud, like, oh, that's me. Or my mom will laugh, like, I didn't do that. And I'm like, yeah, you did. <laughs> and, um, you know, like moments like that, I think they're happy to have our experiences and their roles crystallized in this way, like written on the page. It's kind of like bearing witness in ways that we have never had in our family I mean, we barely have pictures from their childhood, from my childhood. There's a horrible story uh, or incident that happens where I took most of all the pictures of me as a child and put them in one photo album because I was 13 and we were going to L.A. to have a family reunion. And I was like right in that prime, like, you know, teenage narcissistic like age where I'm like, I'm going to make a photo album of just me. And I took all these pictures, put them in this album. We went to LA and had a great family reunion, passed the photo album around all week. And then on our way to the airport, we stopped at a souvenir shop. And while we were in the shop, people robbed the truck with all of our luggage, all of our suitcases, including... Yeah, including my photo album. And I really think that instilled in me in in some subconscious way, like I have to find a way to to reclaim those images and those stories that were lost. So I love writing nonfiction. I'm grateful. This is kind of the first time I'm talking about the essay collection and it's been a long time coming. You know, I've written these pieces over the last 10 years plus and to be able to have it in one book is just so thrilling and I can't, I can't wait. Is it also nerve wracking? Yes, (laughs) (laughs) totally nerve wracking. I mean, the essays are personal. They're vulnerable. 
Um, I share, oh my gosh, about relationships. I write about body image and my struggles with body image and and whiteness and my journey toward becoming a writer and how I really struggled with whether or not my stories had value and my voice mattered. So yeah, it's super vulnerable, but I, I feel like here we are and I just want to maybe offer these up to other readers who might feel like they can connect in some way. You know, I know lots of writers say that, but it is true that when you feel yourself reflected on the page, it just does so much. It can. That was author Jennifer DeLeon. We've been talking to her about her forthcoming collection of personal essays, White Space, essays on culture, race, and writing, and her debut novel, Don't Ask Me Where I'm From, which came out this year. One thing that's made the pandemic more bearable for me is walking outside. Rain, shine, warm, cold. I'll tell myself, just do it. What about you? What's the best advice you would offer that's helped you manage this year? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. We hope to share your words of wisdom in the new year. And thanks. That's a wrap on Next this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Publix Radio. 